You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. This past week, I started rehearsals up in Connecticut at the Goodspeed Opera House, doing a new musical version of the classic tale, Anne of Green Gables. It's a well-known story around the world, but especially in its home country of Canada. So in honor of that, I thought I would bring a Canadian onto the podcast. Hi, my name is Ashley Victoria Robinson. I am originally from Canada, about 14 different cities because my dad was in the military, and I now reside in Los Angeles, California. You may know me or get to know me for being an award-losing actor, an award-losing podcast host, and an award-losing comic book writer. If you are a marketing executive, you might have seen my face as the face of Twitter marketing for podcasts, and I recently worked with Freeform on the show Good Trouble, and I'm about to debut The Bear of Bad News at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. While Ashley and I won't be talking about Anne of Green Gables per se, we will be covering some of the themes from that story, dealing with the loss of family and how that can impact our lives, finding our place in this world and where we belong, and learning how to control our emotions and our words so that they don't get us into trouble. Now, I hadn't met Ashley until we really sat down for this interview, But just like Anne is constantly searching for that kindred spirit, I found a wonderful connection with Ashley throughout our conversation, and thankfully, a kindred spirit in this industry. It is, I think, one of the most Hollywood stories that I've ever had of, like, I said this nasty thing and came this close to somebody figuring it out who I actually really like, I care a lot about, we've maintained a friendship. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning Top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives as they bring us three stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Ashley. It is it really is nice to meet you. I, I love these bi-coastal interviews that I get to do, New York, Los Angeles. So thank you so much for being here. We love time zones. Thank you so much for <laughs> having me. I will say every Patrick I've ever known is wonderful and you do not disappoint. Well, I appreciate that. You know what? I've known quite a few Ashleys and I have adored all of them. So this is a good start. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I love is that you are originally from Canada mm-hmm. and you came to the U.S. And I, I imagine that, yes, Canada and U.S., we share a lot in common. You know, we're, we're like sister countries, but but we're, we're different in some ways. Yes. And I assume you've come to find that out. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. Um, one of my favorite descriptions of sort of the difference between Canada and America actually comes from my American husband. And it's that if English England is the mom, then America moved across the street and is like, F you, mom and dad, you can't tell me what to do, but we're going to use your language and your customs to build up what we think is a society. And Canada, we kind of moved into the attic and we're paying rent. So we feel like we're independent, but we're really not that different. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And there's parts of Canada, like there's the French Canada, which Mm -hmm. is like its own offshoot. Oui, c'est ça, on aimez-vous. 
Oui, oui. Yes. That's all <laughs> my, I got. My mom's family is all French and my dad's family is Anglophone. So I was very blessed to um, learn English and French growing up. I'm working on German Brilliant. now. That's my pandemic hobby. Um, and it's been cool because the first commercial I ever did after I graduated theater school was for a KY Jelly France because <laughs> nobody in LA speaks French. <laughs> Everyone speaks Spanish. <laughs> yeah. The fact that you had to speak another language is not really what sticks out about that. Oh, la la, I <laughs> it was very chaste given who we were promoting. <laughs> I, am, I am sure. I'm sure you have to do it delicately, but you know, they, they're a company <laughs> the like, anything. yeah, but they're a company they have to advertise. So there you go. Well, well, I, that this Canadian discussion gets us into the first story, which is about you growing up and being in a military family. So you had no hometown, no roots mm-hmm. really. And while you were growing up there, your father became terminally ill and mm-hmm. passed away when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that just change and transition, these were themes of your childhood. Definitely. And if people are familiar with uh, particularly any of my writing work, it is rife with dead dads, which I did not understand <laughs> until, I don't know, maybe five years ago, because you're like, oh, hey, like no dad, no daddy issues. And it's it's in fact the opposite of that. It's such as all daddy issues. But um, I think like a lot of people, like my father was sick for most of my childhood. I don't, I don't have any memories of him as a healthy person, which is really sad. Uh, when I look at photos, I'm like, wow, that's what he looked like. But because he got sick when I was about six years old and your brain is very squishy, you know, particularly before you go to school. And I think like a lot of people, particularly who experience like really young childhood trauma or like are lacking in an identity. And and I don't mean to say that my parents didn't do the best under the circumstances, but you escape into story. And so two hugely important things for me were the Lord of the Rings movies. And you do a cursory Google search. You're like, oh, wow, Elijah Wood was 19 when he booked this. Like, I'm 12. I like theater. How hard can it be to be an actor? Like, not understanding that he's been working since he was three. So that's like a huge leg up at the age of 19 versus, um, you know, doing like Hamlet as community theater in a small town in Canada. (laughs) Or um, the year my father passed away, I got really into the Rent movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you've never had to pay rent, you're like, yeah, stick it to the bank. And now I've paid rent for a long time. And I'm like, Benny was right. He, he just paid him his rent. He's actually not that bad. Uh, but that was like, and the tragedy around that and like the death of Jonathan Larson. And then Anthony Rapp put out a memoir about playing Mark. And like, he's the guy I had a crush on and had like picture of him in my locker in high school, put out a memoir um, about his mom passing away from an illness when he was at rent. So like both of those things, really, really inspired me to not just play act, but try and take it really seriously. And it comes out of a weird sort of like dark, uncomfortable place. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it because people can talk about if if I can talk about my trauma and not have a breakdown, like I'm clearly coping well enough. I'm not not in therapy. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But it was a huge inspiration to see like how people can come together and how family units can come together. I didn't realize until I was an adult that like, oh, wow, I was effectively from my teenage years on raised by a single mom who just had to be a complete badass and like do what she needed to take care of. My father 
raised two children and she never told me that I couldn't do anything. So when I said, I want to be an actor, she said, yes, you will. You will. And to my family's credit, they all don't understand why I'm not like leading a Marvel movie. So I would rather have that pressure <laughs> than the opposite. That's true. That's true. At least they they think the best and most of you rather than, you know, trying to squash your creative dreams. Yeah. 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 Because I, I had Anthony Rapp on the podcast and he talked I about know. Right? <laughs> it. It was a thrill for me to talk to him. And, and he talked about how his mother was was an inspiration for him and so supportive. And it sounds like that your mother was that for you as well. Mm-hmm. And and if I can tell one more Anthony Rapp story. Go for it. When he and Adam Pascal um, reprised their roles as Mark and Roger on Broadway after the movie came out and Rent was like the hot thing again. And also now again, thanks blessedly to Netflix bringing Tick, Tick, Boom to all of us. Um, he did... Uh, a signing at like the wax museum in New York, which is like a weird place to be. And I brought his memoir to him and I told him like, Oh, my dad just died. And like, this book was like really helpful. And like, thank you so much for publishing this. Like it means so much to me. And he signed my book. I still have it. And he signed my rent Bible, you know, that big oversized book that Mm -hmm. they print with all the pictures and the lyrics. And I remember this until I die. He told me that which I'm sure he tells all young ladies, but that he was so impressed by the grace and dignity with which I carried myself. And I have never met him since, but it was one of the nicest things that like a person I really admired at a difficult time in my life ever said to me. So hopefully someday I will get to tell that story to him. (laughs) Well, I mean, as you say, you didn't know a time when your father wasn't sick. So it's Mm -hmm. almost like you, you didn't know before there was only during and so you 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 had to I guess learn as as you got older as he progressed in his illness really how to handle it. And it's it's particularly strange when you become an adult and you're like that was weird. Most people don't have that level of experience as a child. When I started theater school, I'm sure you're familiar with a version of this exercise. We called it hot objects, where you bring in like something that's emotionally charged and you describe it and you tell the story and you kind of learn how to cry on cue. It was great. And and so I told that story. Uh, I, I told the story about like the teddy bear I've had my entire life, my dad being sick and, and dying and all that. And uh, there was a lot of other people who at the age of like 18 or 19 or 20, their biggest trauma is that somebody broke up with them in high school. And you're like, oh, my sweet summer child, how lucky you are. Right, that that's it, that that's your biggest, yes. Yeah, and it's not, it's not a point system of like who's had worse things happen to them, but it cha- I think it changes a lot of the ways that you choose to create and the types of stories that you want to tell. Like I'm much more drawn to tragedy and difficulty and, and struggle. I did this, let's see, here's a pivot. If you, if you could see this, there's a picture of fan art of me behind me. I did this 31 episode Star Trek parody web series called The Red Shirt Diaries, which lives on YouTube if anyone wants to find it. And it's very silly. So it's like the episodes of the original series. And I'm like the character around the corner from the main action that's going on. Mm. And you better believe for our season finale, we killed my dad <laughs> in the story. Oh yeah. <laughs> and it was, you know, uh, when you do most of your web series, a lot of your friends. And I was like, okay, just let me go behind the flat and I'll come out in like a minute and I'll be ready to cry. Like, don't even... Don't don't even worry about. I got. I got this. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. So, I grew up with a single mother myself, but but I, I never knew a father. So, by the time your father passed away, did your mother step up and fill those two roles? Absolutely. And it's hard to realize that when you're in it. I imagine it's the same for your experience because you're just like, well, this is 
this is my life. That's all I know, right. Yeah, and like we're happy and we're healthy and we're well cared for. And like, yes, I can go and do, you know, Hamlet or Taming of the Shrew or you can, I did a lot of Shakespeare when I was a teenager. (laughs) And, And you don't, you don't really realize it until you reflect back on it. Like, wow, the the power and the will to just hold it together, not only for yourself, but for everyone else. And then as an artist, you know, we're all kind of delicate flowers and you're like, could I, I don't think I could never, like I'm a, I have my tech rehearsal on Friday and I'm fully prepared to like go in and cry for like a good half of it. Not, not for any particular reason, but I, I really, I admire that. And I admire that in, modern day characters. Cause I think particularly in the frame of motherhood, I say this as someone whose um, only role as a mother is to a cat. I think it's often thankless. Yeah. I mean, because what they do, I mean, I, I know that my mother was so about me that it, it wasn't until I got older that I really started to find out about her because mm-hmm. she had a previous child that she gave up for adoption. You know, she was never married. I mean, she, she had her own life that had its own troubles and traumas. And, and so it was only as I got older that I realized she was more than just my mother. Yeah. And that they're more than just a vessel to like help you survive. Right. By, I suppose. I mean, I've seen my mother cry maybe three times in my life. Like she's very, like very controlled, very like in the circle. She did not cry when I got married. Uh, one of the only times I saw her cry was at my father's funeral. And I am the opposite. If I am not like a two or a seven on the emotional scale, like too happy, too sad, I am crying. <laughs> like I've evoked rent a lot recently, but I just saw the tour in April and like cried at the same parts that I always cry at mm-hmm. and was like, I can't wait. Angel's going to die and I'm going to be ruined. <laughs> Next to normal. Normal was that for me. I saw it three yes. times when it was on Broadway. And I, I don't know if it was the same time. I know there's one moment, especially whenever at the end, spoiler alert's coming, yeah, yeah. at the end when the father finally sees Gabe. And mm-hmm. it's, and, and I mean, that, that got me all three times. But, th- but then there were different moments because I got to see two different actresses play the mother. So they had, they brought different things to it. But, but, but yeah, that there are these shows like Rent or Next to Normal or other shows that we latch on to and, and kind of hold a, a bit of our existence in them. Yeah. And they become like a strange part of your identity. As long as I've had social media every December 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, like every year, like they're scheduled. Now they go out December 24th, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then I get a huge bit of people being like, what is this? And I'm like, look, fam, if you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. If you get it, you get it. Did you see uh, Next Normal? Did you see Alice Ripley? I saw Alice Ripley twice. And then Amazing. Maren Maisie was, uh, oh. was the third one. And she, she I mean, just as good, but different in many yeah. different ways. And and brought, because uh, Alice Ripley is so, like, she's a little crazy herself. So so she brought that energy to it. Whereas Maren Maisie was so grounded, which which made it in some ways more heartbreaking because she was so based in reality, but yet her mind was elsewhere. So it was, uh, it was two different performances that I absolutely loved. Superboy and the Invisible Girl is in my book. So yeah, <laughs> I love, yeah. I love Next Normal. <laughs> oh, it has such great music, such great music. Well, did, did your father get to see or foster any of this creativity before he passed? So my family is a lot of uh, military folks Mm -hmm. and jocks. Uh, My father was like an Olympic level rower. Uh, My mom was an international competitive bodybuilder. My brother was an alternate on the Olympic wrestling team. Like we do sports. (laughs) That is what we do. (laughs) And so what is your sport gift? (laughs) 
So mine was uh, swimming and triathlons in distance. So I was on the Olympic track until I was about 12. And I was like, I would much rather be a hobbit, which (laughs) upon reflection is like, I'm much more of a, of a hobbit than an elite athlete because I'm too emotional, but I don't know. There's a lot of athletes who can't behave. So maybe I should have, maybe I should have stuck with it, but that was my, that was my swimming in particular was like my thing. Um, and for, for women, usually the 800 meters, like the long, longest distance you go. So that was, that was what I did. But the last thing my father ever saw me do was, and I mentioned this kind of as a joke before, uh, when I was in high school, we lived in a town called Stratford, Ontario, Canada, which is the world's largest professional Shakespeare festival outside of London or outside of the UK, I guess. Um, and that was about the time where I was like, I think I want to be an actor. And there's a great um, youth theater company there called Playmakers, and it's focused a lot on the classics. And so the first Shakespeare I ever did was Hamlet. And I played Rosencrantz, which is like so much fun. Uh, and as a female who like had a crush on Hamlet, but was like dating Guildenstern, you know, the, the whole thing that you do when you're a teenager doing Shakespeare and you're trying to ground it. And uh, it's to this day, still one of the most fun experiences I've ever had. I think about it very fondly. I look back at the stupid dress they put me in and I can't believe how beautiful I felt versus how silly I look. But that <laughs> was uh, the last thing that my dad got to see me do, which when I go back and write like the memoirs of my life or whatever, uh, that's probably going to be like a really important part of that's where I kind of felt like I I started taking it seriously. And I definitely thought I was a professional now you uh, wasn't, but that for me is like a pivotal moment when I look back at the journey. And I'm so glad that if he had to miss out on so many of the other things that he got to be a part of this moment that, you know, probably a hundred people ever got to experience, mm-hmm. but means so much to me in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember, I think my first professional job was in high school and it was like, this affirmation, because it it had nothing to do with my high school, although there were friends of mine from the school in it, but it was like this outside thing. We did a radio Christmas play. So, you know, very, very (laughs) silly, but also, you know, had to take it very seriously because I, because we all had to play these different roles. And yeah, there's, you remember that first time when it's like, someone wants to give me money to do this. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy when you're in that professional environment for the first time. And also when you're being, when you're being treated as, as if you know what you're doing, not that there aren't professional sets where you're treated exactly the opposite, but (laughs) a lot of it is like, especially when you're young, it's, it's that, that like mature audience giving that respect to, or, or the, the sort of, if you know, I think our director was a woman probably in her sixties. Um, but her treating us, like we had a good handle on it. We knew what we were doing. We were doing the scansion. We had, we had a special dictionary to look up, like, does folks mean the same thing in Shakespearean English that we think folks means, you know, all the drama school things. Right. Of course. It's a learning experience as much as a uh, theatrical experience. (laughs) Right. Now I did have a Team USA biathlete on Kristen Hetzel. She was on the podcast about a year and a half, two years ago. And I asked her this question. So I'm going to pose it to you. Did being an athlete help in any way as you transitioned to becoming an actress? Did, did you find things that you could pull from that type of training and learning and process and apply it to being an actor? I think the level of dedication and then the willingness to train on your own, because particularly in sports, right? Like if you're a runner, you just have to run every day and you'll get faster eventually. And then you plateau and you sort of struggle with what the plateau means. If you're growing, it's very different than, you know, than when you're an adult. And I don't think we give enough credit to that as, as actors, because if you play a musical instrument, um, 
you have to practice every single day, your skills drop. And as an actor, I, we, I think we often find ourselves sitting around being like, cool. I haven't worked in two years. Um, it's right? the pandemic. I'm self-taping, which is a freaking nightmare. And someone's either reading with me over the phone or someone's reading with me who like, doesn't really want to be reading with me, uh, you know, things like that. And I've really tried, especially since, uh, leaving like an institution of school outside of taking class and things like that to make sure that I'm always creating work for myself or like, um, we, I have a podcast as well. And like even doing that, like it's performing in a different way or web series or like producing theater or anything like that, because reps are important, which is something that I did learn from being an athlete is you have to get the reps in, but it's hard because what am I going to do to be or not to be to my bookshelf? I mean, I could, but <laughs> in an age of social media, we are we are luckier than ever. Like I have a TikTok. I don't understand TikTok. I don't know why people like TikTok. Um, but I put silly sketches on there because if nothing else, I'm like, cool, I'm practicing. I'm learning if this is funny. I'm learning. I can't do impressions, <laughs> stuff like that. But yeah, I think that was one thing that I had to learn. I'm still pretty much learning it. I'd been working for a while and then I kind of hit this place of, oh, I can actually like level up. It's not, it's not just, it's not just me working and standing and I'm good. I'm good. No, actually, I can actually level up and do more things. So it's taken me a while even still to realize the, the work and that repetition and how important that is. Which is wild because you and I are like post the actor's studios performers. And that's kind of the ethos of what that was, right? Like go and do a monologue, suck really hard and you'll be better tomorrow. And, and I think there's a lot of things that have, have caught on, right? Like Second City used to be a lot of like comedy-based things that you'll see across different cities that are by coastal or by national, I suppose. But the actor studio is not something that we've really seen replicated in that same way. And it's hard because I don't know about you, but like I, I am like so desperately at all times seeking validation. So it's it's very hard to find a place where you can fail and fail in such a spectacular way and have a bunch of people be like, that's okay, buddy. Come back tomorrow. We'll do it again. But that's like the wonderfulness of training. I was told this and I still believe it that auditioning is one of the best forms of, of training. It's, it's, it's its own little mini workshop every time you audition. So I took that as audition as much as possible, which is, yes, great mm -hmm. thing to do. However, that means all my failures, all my trials, all my whoopsie-daisies are in the audition room rather than in a training in, in class. So that is probably why some casting directors may not call me back as much as, <laughs> as I wish they did because they saw those early stumbles. And, you know, it took me a while to assure them that, yes, I'm not always as bad as that whatever audition <laughs> you saw. I often think of um, auditions as that's the job. That's the not fun part because being on set or being in rehearsal, like all of that is fun. I mean, set is long and maybe your feet hurt, but you just get to go there and like have fun and hopefully you have some good energy, but like man auditioning, it's a beast unto itself <laughs> and it never like, like there's no hashtag it gets better for auditioning. <laughs> Ashley is right. Auditions certainly are a roller coaster that we may get used to as actors, but that doesn't mean they ever get any easier. Now, this week's bonus episode is an audition story where she talks about her experience with M. Night Shyamalan's 2019 film, Glass. 
It's a case study in how casting directors sometimes don't do their job and how we as actors just have to be ready for anything in the audition room. Now, bonus episodes like these are only available to monthly supporters of Why I'll Never Make It. So if you'd like to help this podcast as well and get access to bonus episodes like the audition stories, then consider a monthly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe. Or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, that leads us into the next story, which actually combines you immigrating to the United States, suddenly being thrown into this large (laughs) talent pool of people you're auditioning up against. And you say that you lost out to more dream jobs than you ever could have hoped to get. (laughs) So, you know, coming to America, immigrating is its own adjustment. So what did you have to do? First, we'll deal with just living. So living in the U.S. versus Canada, what was an adjustment you had to make there? So first of all, in terms of immigrating for choice, I didn't flee a war-torn country. Like I came because I wanted to and everything. I was accepted into school. Zero out of 10, do not recommend. <laughs> it's very hard and it's very expensive. Mm. Um, the, I, It's so interesting because Canada and the States on the face of it are very similar, but it's like in the minutia of how things are different. And I lived in the capital city of Canada, which is called Ottawa. It's not Toronto, it's Ottawa. And then I came to Los Angeles, which is a city that I, I'd never been in before. And uh, I'd never even been to the West Coast before. And it is huge. And like Los Angeles is a weird, dumb city. It's not accessible. You have to drive anywhere, everywhere. It's hot. It's the, the ground shakes. Like it's the opposite in every way. I went as far as I could on the continent mm-hmm. <laughs> from where I was. I'm from the East Coast. Um, I was used to like ice storms and the power going out for weeks at a time and like minus 40 Celsius. And then I come here and it is plus 40 Celsius all the time. And there's no humidity and I don't like to drive. Uh, So like just small, strange things like that. And then the ever ongoing mental gymnastics of, is this gas pain or do I need my appendix out? I'm not bleeding to death yet. Should I fly to Vancouver because the healthcare there is free? That's like, the hugest adjustment to me is is mm. the, the stuff around socialized, but not to get like too like political or strange about it, but like that is a weird thing that I never had to think about. And coming from a family that had a very ill family member who had a lot of surgeries and spent like I spent a lot of time in hospitals as a kid, um, nothing happened. We didn't go broke. We weren't devastated by it because some cells turned left and instead of right. So. That's the biggest thing is being like, wait, am I dying or am I over 25 and slept funny? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, The other particular thing I find about LA, because I'm an East Coast girl at heart, like New York is my favorite city in the world. LA is much more um, image based. So everyone is really, really nice to you because they might need you someday. And in New York, if someone hates you, they'll just tell you that they hate you, which <laughs> as a triple Aries, I love. <laughs> or just turn the other way and never speak to you again. Absolutely. But at least that's honest. <laughs> at least you know. You're right. And uh, Canada actually is, is, is a lot more probably similar to California because we have this international reputation of being very nice. And it's like not necessarily that we're nicer, but I think we're better at hiding our badness. 
Um, and I think a lot of that, again, not to get too political, has kind of come up in the last few years of as some of these um, grave sites on um, residential schools have been uncovered and we've sort of unpacked some of Canada's uglier history as well. But when you come to the States from Canada, you're going to hear all the dumb jokes about, um, do you have, uh, have you ever seen a polar bear? And you're like, yes, in the zoo in Berlin, not in my backyard. Um, how do you spell Canada? It's actually spelled C N D, but they go C A N A D A. Like I have heard, I've heard all of them. I don't know that one. That's a new <laughs> one to me. Yeah. And it distills to becoming like, that's the entire, that's your identity. So you have to earn it. Yeah. And I went to theater school with a girl from Minnesota who sounded more Canadian than I did. But every time <laughs> I said a people would be like, oh, course, or, or sorry. Oh. <laughs> so you squelch that out of your vocabulary very, very quickly. I imagine it's it's similar if you come from the South. Walton Goggins tells this great story about like working so hard to not sound Southern and then post justified everyone just wants him to be like southern as all get out <laughs> yeah being from birmingham alabama myself that mm-hmm. it wasn't anything that i consciously did but i the, the only thing that i did get out of my uh vocabulary was fixing because you know I, I, i'm gonna go fix some breakfast or i'm fixing to do this yeah i i got fixing out of my vocabulary and all its various meanings so that was the only <laughs> thing that i really tried to but as far as an accent mm-hmm. it wasn't anything that that i tried to do i think just being musical and learning to sing a certain way i think it affected how i then spoke so i didn't really have to, but then no one notices or thinks about it. But as soon as I mention I'm originally from Alabama, then it's like, oh, 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 now I hear. Oh, now I hear. It's like, you don't hear anything. Or or when you get worked up, right? Oh, when I get angry, it comes out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes out. I, you know, I have my two favorite words that I say when I'm angry and then a little bit of twang comes with it, you know? So yeah, yeah, it does happen. My my R's really come out. (laughs) My out and abouts. (laughs) Get out, get out. I didn't hear it for so long. And then uh, when I started going home, I was like, oh no, they were right. We do sound like hill folk. (laughs) Cause it's not, it's not quite, Irish and it's not quite Scottish. Right, right. Unless you're like in Nova Scotia or um, Newfoundland, New, Newfoundland yeah. or something. Yeah. My husband is from Kansas. So when he met my French Canadian grandfather for the first time, who is who had never left the country and never met an American, my grandfather said, you don't sound the way I, I thought you would sound. And my husband goes, you want me to talk like this? And he was like, yes, that is how American. He's <laughs> like, everyone thinks that Americans are all Texans. So like the, the bias Funny. does go both ways. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Especially when you've never met one before. Yeah. So that's the living and the culture. So yeah, yeah, as yeah. an actress, what adjustments did you have to make coming here? <laughs> so I, I mentioned I lived in Ottawa and Ottawa has a really good theater scene, but it's still um, a fairly, I mean, I say small city, like it's smaller than Toronto. It's smaller than New York. It's smaller than LA. So I got to the point where if I auditioned for something, I knew within that community, I could at least get a decent, I could at least get a callback if I wasn't going to book it. Like I booked Peter Pan and I was like, yes, of course I did. Look at my face. Look at my short hair. Uh, they were like, do you want to read for Wendy? And I was like, no, I know, I know what I look like. I'll be fine. <laughs> and then one of my first auditions in LA was for Hunger Games. And I love the books. And uh, the last one had just come out. And I was like so excited about it. Like, I can't even tell you how it went. Like I blacked out in the room because I'd never been part of, I'd never been up for anything that big or certainly anything that I'd ever realize like I've I've gone out for like 
Marvel stuff and not booked it and TV shows that I like. This is the other bad thing. This is like a Mark Hamill piece of advice. Everything you want, you'll never get. Oh, oh yeah. I still have these dream roles, these bucket list roles. And and I'm like, I've either aged out of them or I just don't care about the show anymore like I used to. Yeah. yeah, There's all these like dream roles that are just like, well, that's gone. Yeah. And then, and the thing that you don't really want that is like inconvenient in your schedule is the thing that you'll book. And then you're like, well, or you'll book equity points. So, right. Or you'll book two of them and be like, really? I haven't worked for 11 months and now I've booked two things at the same time. And I don't, didn't really want either (laughs) of them. Like, cool. That's great. Right. Right. So what were some of these dream jobs that you lost out on? Or Or what were some of the biggest ones that had an impact on you? Ooh, um, I went in for a very early draft of the pilot of Gotham, uh, the Batman show, which like I said, I'm a huge nerd. Like all I want is to be in a superhero thing. I don't have to be the superhero. That would be sick. Um, that character that I went into, uh, was not in the show. So I'm going to say that that wasn't me. That was the script. Um, but I did not get that. Um, I was in front of the casting directors for arrow a couple times. And anytime I'm up for anything in Canada, I'm like, she can be a local hire. I can have an address in Vancouver. Like I know a lot of people in Canada. So I was like, yeah, I have 12 addresses. I will figure it. Don't you worry <laughs> about that. Um, and I really liked Arrow. Like I watched the show all the way through, through the good and the bads. So like that one was like particularly uh, devastating. I was up for, here's, here's a wild thing, uh, which, which this was right when I graduated theater school. Uh, my first ever agent put, submitted me for In the Heights. And I was like, I'm white. Like, Fully, I have now done my 23 and me. So I am like a hundred percent East, like European. And she was like, just go and sing. And I was like, okay, I will, I will go and I will sing. Um, and it's not that I'm sad that I didn't get in the heights because I should not have been in, in I should right. not have been in the room in the first place. Um, but I really but still, it's the casting loved, director who, asked, yes. who said you could be there. So it, it was my first, uh, you know, T and C <laughs> audition. So um, what else? What other musical? Oh, I lost out on Ilsa from Spring Awakening twice, uh, which was like another part, like the early tours, like uh, when I was when I was like a teen and I really that's like my dream, which I think I am now too old for it, would be to be in Spring Awakening. <laughs> I think it's really, really great. And uh, I'm not like a great traditional musical theater singer. And you don't have to be like, you don't have to be burning at Peter's to be in Spring Awakening, you know? Right. Uh, so I was like, sweet. This is like my, it's like that and Adam's family, like give it to me. <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed Adam's family because I remember watching it growing up. You know, it, it was all reruns by that point. Mm-hmm. But I remember watching those when I was a kid because my mother had watched it when she was a kid. So, so Hold yeah. Is, I, is another song that's in my book. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's right there. It, it's it's wonderful. And of course, you know, not booking these jobs, we, we have to make money somehow. So of course we're mm-hmm finding survival jobs to, you know, or other out- outlets for our creativity. And one of yours is as a comic book writer. That's now true. you're, you're actually quite prolific. You're, you're, you're doing this, you, you know, you have a <laughs> podcast as well. Mm-hmm. So you have all these things. Was the comic book, was that a survival job that became something else? Or did you pursue that? I've always loved comics. And as long as we were reading, my family was like, great, you read whatever you want. We don't care. <laughs> Uh, I love 90s comics, especially like my favorite character is Robin. Um, when I, I don't drink anymore, but when I used to drink, my party trick was to find the dude in the Batman shirt because there's always one. 
and uh, just <laughs> scream at him about how important Robin is as a character. So you can imagine I was very popular at college parties. Very much so. <laughs> top of the list, uh, top of the invite list. Absolutely. But if you get someone with that, that's a match made for life. <laughs> um, so I entered in 2013. They're the biggest independent publisher of comics is called Image Comics. They have a couple imprints under them. And one of them is called Top Cow. And they had a talent hunt and I won. Uh, which was amazing. So that's how I started writing comics. And then in 2016, we published our first um, award-losing comic book series, Jupiter Jet. First volume came out. But also right now, comics are so hot as an IP farm. And I mean, it's not that it's not that I I don't, it's not that I want to be a TV writer and take that job from somebody who really wants it. But like, if Netflix is looking to buy, they can hit me up at any time. Of course. And, and like podcasting comics, um, there's very few gatekeepers if you're willing to go independent, if you don't have your heart set on, I have to write Superman or I have to write the Avengers or I, I'm worthless. And then the value in that is that you own that IP forever and ever and ever. And I am very passionate particularly in comic books. Um, it was a medium that was created for people of all ages. It was honestly for children for a really, really long time. And some of our best stories and our best heroes that have come out of that came from the idea of it being all ages. So all of the comics that I write are in the all ages space. And it might shock you to learn that like the first two books have girls with dead dads, in them, <laughs> which is like a huge plot point. <laughs> so when I did my, my latest comic um, that... And we're printing the first issue of right now. It's called Aurora and the Eagle. It's about a Canadian superhero who moves to America to like become the best superhero she can be. I just don't talk about her parents at all because yeah. I was like, you know what? I think I think I've tilled that ground <laughs> enough in the comic book space for a little while. But I really kind of going back to our conversation about like reps and like making sure that you're doing the work yourself. Storytelling in any format is going to make you a better performer, and I feel like writing and producing also gives you a unique appreciation of what your collaborators go through when you just have the job of standing there and being the star and delivering your lines. So I'm very, I'm very invested in like comic books as a medium, their importance in the market right now, like the sort of overall like mass media market, but also I think, I think they're kind of underrated. So, uh, because people think that they're like silly, funny books. So if they want to let me keep writing books and then not giving me awards for it. I can't be that sad about it. Well, I mean, it's interesting because graphic novels, as they're now being called, because, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're not comic books, you know, it's like- They elevated. are comic books, grow up, they're comic books. <laughs> right, but they're trying to elevate them, these <laughs> yeah, graphic yeah, yeah, novels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but one even became a popular musical, Fun Home, you know, with yeah. Alison Bechtel. And, and so is that the type of direction you want your own comics to go? I think in a pink and perfect world, we all want everything that we create to go to the highest level possible. I would love, I would love to see it adapted in some way. Uh, we actually have a book called Science, The Elements of Dark Energy that I think would be great for the stage. Um, but I think for Jupiter Jet, that's probably more of like an animation or a cartoon kind of vibe. Like I imagine it like uh, if you're familiar with Netflix's Voltron, uh, that's kind of how I see it being. But if all it is is just a book that I write and collaborate with a bunch of cool people on and like 5,000 people read it, like I'm so good if that is all it ever is. So anywhere that it goes from there, like the, any new heights that it takes me to, it's just a bonus, honestly. <laughs> 
Well, we get to the last story, and I must say that I love this. This is one of my favorite <laughs> stories. Oh my gosh, I love this story. And this one is about the time you reviewed a show online, mm-hmm. and you called a performer in it garbage. I did. Only, <laughs> only to then wind up in a class with the significant other of garbage actor, yep. and you became friends with this, <laughs> this significant other. Now, can we at least talk about what the show was? Um, I don't want to say what the show was because okay. I think the person will be able to figure out. So here's the, here's the heavily, it was a genre show. It was a streaming show. I mentioned I like superheroes, so you can probably suss out somewhere in that world. A okay, good collection of what it was. Okay. Um, so I'll say I'll say what I reviewed it for. So I used to work a lot with Collider when they had a more expanded YouTube show, and so we would review shows that were coming out regularly, um, which is not something I'm as invested in doing anymore because. I've had some growth since then, and I have come to understand that nobody makes something intentionally bad. Even properties or directors or or studios that you're like, oh, wow, I mean, everything they make is horrible. Like nobody's out there trying to disappoint you, particularly when there's the weight of a pre-existing IP um, attached to it. And part of this is also being like a young person who was not happy with my career. Like I was bitter. Of course, and right. jealous. So you're getting that out, um, right? And and I will I will stand by. I do not think this performer is very good um, in that role, but <laughs> I saw it. And so in the review, and you're you're in the room with people, you know, um, and you're trying to be funny, and you're trying to be affable, and you're trying to like make jokes, and then you don't you you kind of forget that like to quote the Social Network, like the internet is written in ink mark, like that stuff lives. For like you can delete that, but somebody could have pulled it from the internet. They could screen cap it. They could anything else. So yep. I said this person was garbage, and then I promptly forgot about it and never worried about it again. And then a couple years later, I was in an improv class and uh, made friends with another person in the improv class who uh, mentioned a role that they had. They're very recognizable. So I'm going to try to be as vague about this. As possible. I mentioned a genre role that they had also played. And I was like, Oh, so cool. Cause I kept saying, you look so familiar, but like, I can't, I know your name, which was a nickname. I Googled you. Like I, maybe we met at a party once and I yelled at you about Batman and Robin. Like, I, I don't know <laughs> how we know each other. And then they were like, Oh, well, I, you mentioned that you like this thing. I was in this movie that is kind of related to this thing. And I was like, oh yeah, I totally know. How cool is that? So then they said, oh, my significant other is also uh, this this person in this thing. And my brain was like, oh no, I don't think they're going to Google me, but if they do, and you would really have to dig to find this. It's not even on like my first six pages of Google results because I know what's on my first six pages right. of Google results as we all do. Um, but like, it's not out of the realm of possibility that you could find this video of me talking about this thing that this person was in when I said something really nasty. And I was like, oh boy, oh no, oh boy. And then as at the end of all improv shows, then all improv classes, you do your show, your showcase, whatever. This person that I said a nasty thing about was definitely there. Of course, and they're in the audience. Absolutely. And and may or may not have sat very close to my people who were there. Um, and I will tell you, 
freely and honestly, I am a garbage improviser. Improv is not my thing. I'm not good at it, which was one of the reasons I wanted to take the class. I wanted to be more comfortable. I wanted right. to stress. So in fairness, I may have called them garbage, but like I was actually garbage in front of them. And like, it's the thing when you know reviewers in the audience or, you know, like, your mom is in the audience. Like you can't stop thinking about it. And especially when you're improvising, all you have to do is be present. (laughs) And so just because it's public, I won't say who it was, but it is, I think one of the most Hollywood stories that I've ever had of like, I said this nasty thing and came this close to somebody figuring it out who I actually really like, I care a lot about, we've maintained a friendship. And I I, I assume neither of them (laughs) have ever found out. I mean, if they, if they have, they've never told me. (laughs) Okay. Okay. If I was a reviewer, yeah, I would have to choose my words carefully too, because, because especially when you're in, if it's one thing, if you're just a reviewer and that's all you do, you can kind of say whatever you want. Your job is to review and critique. But if you're an actor reviewer, because yeah, you'll eventually meet those people. They might want to hire you for a job. Maybe they do, you know, so you got to be, be watch out for that. Then they, then they Google Yeah. I got a bot recently. I don't think. I don't think I've said anything offensive ever, but I got a bot recently and I was like, let's just delete everything I ever tweeted before 2015, just in case, <laughs> you know, because oh we're not, we're not so sure. That's one thing. And uh, being, you know, here in New York, you know, the, the rule here that you don't badmouth anyone, No, you know, that you wait till you leave the theater before you start critiquing. And of course we all have our critiques about shows we see, but also you're really in with the uh, assistant casting director or mm-hmm. assistant director. These people who are young and upcoming, because you never know in 10 years, they could be the one hiring you. You know, there's this there's this cyclical effect of always trying to be nice and you never know who someone is or will be in the future. And it's, it's a tough thing of wanting to be like honest and genuine, but mm-hmm. also, you know, trying to protect who you are like as a brand and as as a career, whatever, but also like just trying to be like a halfway decent person. Like I would never want anyone to tell me that to my face. So it really wasn't fair that I got on the internet and said it's the entire world. (laughs) Now I know to say it was fine. They were fine. Everything is fine. But but at the same time, I think it's something that we're all, you know, since Twitter and social media and Mm -hmm. what we say and post lives forever. I mean, you know, people are being canceled for things they did 10 years ago, which, you know, yes and no to that. That's its own argument. Yeah. But for me, I always look at it as I never want to lie. And so if a show was not great... I'm not going to profusely just gush about it. No. I will I, I will at least, if there's someone that I know in it, I will compliment them. I will always support them. But that doesn't mean that I have to like go on and give it five stars and tell everyone to go see it. I, I can still be honest and truthful with how I think. And I choose my words more carefully so that if I do have a critique, it's more just a factual, very subjective, like this is how I felt about mm-hmm. it. But I know other people have really enjoyed it. You know, I always, I very much try to see both sides and know that just because I hate something doesn't mean it's not going to make a hundred million dollars, you know, whatever. Because it's one thing if you're just a reviewer and that's all you do, you can kind of say whatever you want. Your job is to review and critique. But if you're an actor reviewer, because yeah, you'll eventually meet those people. They might want to hire you for a job. Maybe they do, you know, so you got to be watch out for it. (laughs) Yeah. Two things that I've learned is to say, it's not for me. Because that is also very true. And that doesn't mean that it's not good or has no value. 
but also, uh, you know, Thumper says, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Uh, and that's fine too. And the internet wants us to have opinions on everything. And it's so flattering when someone reaches out to you through the internet and they're like, what did you think about whatever show? Or what do you think about this piece that just opened? And you're like, well, I just don't have to say anything. Maybe I didn't see this update. Who knows? (laughs) But there is always something. There is always something nice to say. Even it's like the editing on that show was like really, really top notch. There's always something good to say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because as you say, people may know, because I've spoken with directors and actors when they know they're in a project that probably isn't the best. But Yeah. yeah, they didn't go into it, obviously, thinking that or wanting that. So, yeah, you can always pick out something because... Yeah, look, look, we're we're all trying to make art that is so subjective to begin with, mm-hmm. and we're just trying to to find those little nuggets that will feed our creative soul. And I would rather see something that is imperfect but took a really big swing mm-hmm. than that's the same as everything else I've ever seen. And I would rather be a part of those projects too. I'd rather be a part of something that's like challenging and maybe doesn't completely land but sends people home really thinking about it than I don't know. Uh, cause now I feel like I'm going to drag something. If I say, <laughs> if I say what, something very formulaic that we've seen a bunch of times before. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there was a lot of that. And, and yeah. in the comic book world and superhero world, we, we get a lot of that. I mean, we love tropes and genres. We love tropes, right? we love patterns. We love an eternal second act. What is Marvel going to do next? Who knows? Probably another villain. <laughs> Pro- probably the same thing they did just with a different costume. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, b- believe me, I'm all about superhero heroes and part of me knows that that there's a childlike element to that because it's it's me you know superman was my first big one you know mm-hmm. growing up the the christopher reeve was was just coming out oh. so for me that's who i looked up to i mean and he was superman to me he was this this iconic person who just was good and people loved him and he did so much wonderful thing you know of course who wouldn't be inspired as a 10 year old or five year old <laughs> however old i was be inspired by stuff like that. So while there is a childlike element to it, the adult part of me is going, really? Really? We're going to revisit this again? You know, I, I'm now going through and critiquing it as how much better it would be if they would just listen to my opinions <laughs> about it. <laughs> also, though, not enough credit to Christopher Reeve's like incredible performance in Superman the movie, because to me, he really personifies why the glasses trick works because he changes his whole posture his whole demeanor the way he speaks and just so so not that it not that you have to be handsome to be worthy but like it's truly so handsome and so tall in that um i only knew him after i didn't know him but i only knew of him after the accident and like to go back and see that movie for the first time was like wow this is and i mean we all know juilliard trained everything like this is an actor at the height of his power playing such an iconically American character because comic books and jazz are like two of the only original American art forms. Hmm. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah. So for you, this comic book outlet, is it tapping into another part of your creativity or do you see it as an extension of you being an actor? How does it fit into your creative world? I like to think that it's all the same entity because I think when you're working in independent comics, you're basically a producer. Like nominally, I am the writer, but I also have to keep everybody on schedule and make sure that the uh, like internal front cover text with the copyright is uh, properly done. I have to um, spell check the lettering and things like that. So doing work in the comic book space 
which is a very comfortable space for me, I think makes me better in the acting space where I'm often put in spaces of greater discomfort because I have less control. And I try to be on set the kind of person that I would want working under me as a collaborator. It's also why I think all actors should um, do stage management at some point because it gives you a new respect for the people who have the actual hard jobs. We just get to show up and play. Yeah. As you say, to collaborate with others, you have to know from the lowest to the highest rung and how it all works together. I think it also just empathy on any level makes you a better performer because your job is often, well, maybe not so much in LA, but your job is often to play people who are a little bit outside of yourself. Here, I just play like the sarcastic neighbor. <laughs> it's very, very or the nerdy neighbor. Um, but when you're when you're tasked with doing that, if you don't have empathy for the human beings in your real life, then you can't bring, I don't think you can bring as much, particularly to stage work. I would agree with that. Yeah, because on stage, you have to be much more present. You can redo takes on a TV or film show, but with the live theater, you have to show up night after night and, and have it just uh, be so innately a part of you. It's the best. Uh, theater is absolutely my favorite art form of all time. <laughs> Well, it has been a joy to talk to you and reminisce on your experiences and life, both in Canada and here in the U.S. It's been so great meeting you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I've had such a wonderful time. Thank you so much for joining Ashley and me today. But remember, the conversation continues not only with that audition story bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find a link to that in the show notes or by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. This week's listener feedback comes from Megan, who reached out to me on Instagram and said... Looking forward to diving into your podcast. I do miss NYC dearly. Hello from Malaysia. Well, Megan, welcome. It it is wonderful to hear that this podcast is finding an audience halfway around the world. And I really appreciate you joining the conversations I have here. And I hope you're getting a bit of your New York fix as well. All right, well, that does it for me. I am your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production, and it is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.